talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Who wants to take off their clothes and run through a field of daisies? Come on, follow me! Why? Hey! What are you doing, man? What are you doing? I think people are just getting wacky. Uh, and why not? New Arkells. Isn't that nice? Uh, Reckoning. Uh, brand new stuff just released today at noon. New music from the Arkells. Going to be playing that for you as our top hour tune. Loving that. Uh, sounds great. 309. Good afternoon. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton Today. Will Weber playing the new Arkells. And in the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. All right. Uh, uh, we got a, we got a pretty good show today. And by that, I mean, it's not all death and destruction. So my, uh, hats off to the Will. Erskine uh, up in the cloud there and uh, and guiding us through um, uh, a nice balance of things today, uh, probably with no help from me, no doubt. Uh, so anyway, uh, we got lots of cool things coming up, including some uh, great news from the city of Hamilton, HSR recruiting drivers specifically looking for women or on a drive to get more women interested. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Uh, oh, yeah, then it's back into the depressing stuff with a leger poll about how you feel about World War Three. Let's go to the phones. <laughs> all right. Uh, and, and you know, a, a lot of stuff is changing in all of this as far as uh, uh, just more and more word is getting out. And in regard to uh, the uh, uh, sanctions on Russia in Russia and over and above all of that, uh, the IOC has booted Russia and Belarus out of the Paralympic Games. How fascinating is that, considering we just came out of Beijing? We're going to talk about that with Henry Jacek coming up a little later on. Also, uh, this is what I met at the earlier show, and it's not all death and destruction. We're going to be talking to Dr. Jess O'Reilly, sexologist. Haven't had her on in a while, in a while, because, you know, everybody, no doubt, uh, under the covers uh, during this pandemic. So we're going to talk to her about... Um, what it's like to get out again and how people are feeling about that because you know some are still a bit hesitant we see some uh restaurants and such still want to keep their uh vaccine protocol and such in place which is fine i mean nothing wrong with that it's uh you know not one size certainly does not fit one uh one whole province that way so it's great that people are are uh, keeping themselves um, uh, protected in their own way and, and, and conscious of that. But again, what's it like to open the door and go back out? People have sort of been stifled for two years. We're going to talk about that uh, with Dr. Jess O'Reilly coming up a little later on. Uh, and who knows, maybe dancing will lead to sex. Not not in my life, yours, of course. Uh, Michael Tobe's going to be joining us, conservatives talking about uh, a new leader on the way. And you know what? Speaking of leaders, have you noticed um, Anita, Anita Anon and how she has uh, come to the forefront, uh, as well as Christia Freeland uh, with the Ukrainian uh, crisis that is going on and the invasion uh, from Russia, uh, pretty much taking the spotlight from uh, the prime minister. And, and to be honest, probably most Canadians feel more safe in their hands than his, uh, considering he spoke uh, he's, he has spoke pretty much every day about the uh, Ukraine situation, yet, uh, uh, you know, I think in the first two days he spoke more than he did through the whole three weeks of the, in, uh, of the Ottawa uh, occupation or protest or whatever you want to call it. So 
Uh, fascinating how they've changed their position. We will talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, moving forward, how does, uh, they, they talk about, uh, new, uh, new information today about an escape route or at least a uh, safe corridor. Uh, Russian and, uh, Ukraine, uh, tentatively agreeing to something like that. We'll find out more, uh, throughout the afternoon. Uh, so, uh, it's going to be a fascinating afternoon as things develop and, uh, Kherson, uh, the first city to fall to Russia, about a quarter of a million people, and that's a, uh, a port city. And there's sort of been a pause uh, as as they regroup and such. So uh, everybody's hoping clear heads prefer, uh, prevail before it goes uh, too much farther. That's for sure. Other issues we're going to talk about: uh, gas going up again this weekend, uh, and and the average house price of a house in Hamilton over a million dollars now. Uh, incredible when you uh, stop to ponder it. It's amazing what's happened in uh, the course of this global pandemic. So uh, lots going on, and uh, feel free to jump into it. We would love to hear from you. You can send us a note, as I mentioned, and the phone lines are always open. And don't forget, we're always looking for your last word at the very, very end of the show. So if you want your thoughts known, feel free and uh, give give Will Weber a call, and he will lay them down for you. Lots coming up still to come uh, as we move on with Hamilton today. We're going to talk about the HSR, and a recruitment drive to hire more women as drivers for the HSR. That and more all coming up. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900chml.com. I just got one from a a listener that said, um, hiring more women drivers is discrimination. No, I I don't think they're going out looking for a set number of women. I think they're just trying to encourage more women to get a job uh, with the HSR and become a, a part of the process. Uh, that's all. It's sometimes considered one of those stereotypical jobs, you know, although I'm certainly seeing lots of women driving buses and such. But no, probably just trying to encourage uh, more to probably take a career that maybe they didn't think of in the past. But what am I talking for? I will introduce you to someone who will explain all of it. Uh, it let's bring in Maureen Cousin Heath, Director of Transit Hamilton Street Railways, and is with us now. Maureen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. I hope you're well also. Thanks for having me. So far, so good. First of all, before we get into uh, the recruiting part of this, uh, man, obviously two years of a, of a global pandemic. How has HSR made its way through this, maneuvered its way through this, and, and the health of, of, uh, of the HSR right now? So it has been almost exactly two years, which I think for most of us is unfathomable. And I could not be prouder of the way that the staff at HSR has responded for the past couple of years. Our drivers, our maintenance staff, inspectors, dispatchers, customer service representatives, man, they didn't miss a beat. Our buses rolled every single day of the pandemic. They never stopped. And our frontline staff have been out there helping Hamiltonians get where they need to go every single day. And, you know, they don't get enough thanks for what they do. And I'll take every opportunity I I can get to extend our thank you to them. So that's what I'd like to do right now. There you go. That's front line right there. They're on the front lines. No two ways about that. So um, talk about your recruitment drive, what you're looking for, uh, and how has uh, the pandemic affected uh, employment? They say many people are shifting, some deciding not to go back, this, that, and the other. It's changed the way we look at things in a lot of ways. So where does that leave the HSR? 
Well, in general, HSR is such a critical service for our city. People need reliable, exceptional public transit to help them get where they want to go, whether it's, you know, traveling with their family, headed to their jobs, headed to an educational facility, or frankly, just for fun. So we need to have skilled, capable, competent, trained operators behind our wheels. So we're headed into recruitment season, which for us is always very exciting. Uh, people that work in transit, we're passionate about what we do. We believe in the value that we bring to the city. So we're looking for like-minded people to come join our team. Um, so March 8th, which happens to be International Women's Day, is uh, by no coincidence a day we've chosen to host an event called Women Driving Change to encourage women to join the transit industry. We need operators behind the wheel that are really representative of the community that we serve and the passengers that we carry. And so we're trying to help women out there realize that careers in transit um, can be very fulfilling and rewarding. And it's just such a great way to come into our industry. What is the ratio of male to female drivers now? Uh, I think our female operator staff is probably at around 30%. And we're Mm -hmm. always looking to move that needle. And how come you, uh, why do you think you have to do this uh, specifically for females? What is it about maybe they didn't think that this was a job looking that they should look into? What is the stigma or what is the message you're trying to get out to females that would, uh, would be potential operators? I think for any person looking at a transit bus, irrespective of gender, the size of that piece of equipment yeah. is sometimes yeah. an intimidating factor for everyone. Um, so that is certainly one of the things that we like to talk to um, talk to potential candidates about. And we provide paid training uh, and we'll teach them how to drive the equipment, but that, that's a barrier. So it's an opportunity to really listen to female operators that are doing the jobs. saying, listen, I was a bit freaked out by the size of the bus too, but I can do it and so can you. Um, And it really is a panel of people that are frontline, that have done the job, that are very willing to answer the sort of frequently asked questions and talk about their experiences on the road and in other positions in transit. You know, you bring up a valid point, and I just remembered, uh, Maureen, uh, several, several years ago, I remember at Bayfront Park, uh, the HSR got a pile of people together and did a bus rodeo, and it may have been part of the recruitment process, and they actually let us drive one, like around uh, an obstacle course, and uh, it can be pretty intimidating, but it isn't as hard as you look. I mean, they're not. it's not like, uh, you know, reeling in a shark on a small line, so to speak. <laughs> they certainly are, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's a skill to it absolutely but it's not as difficult as one may think as far as intimidation i mean like driving a car it's a learned skill and they practice and they're appropriately trained and they get a special class of license um and then of course with experience comes confidence and you know they're able to handle that piece of equipment in all types of weather and traffic conditions and yes the bus rodeo gives unlicensed people that sort of taste of what it's like it's um, but cool you really can't it's replicate real- the experience of, yeah. of driving in a snowstorm with a bus full of people for sure no no see i don't think i would have enjoyed it as much uh doing it on a summer day in bayfront park as opposed to uh on a on a on a nice steep incline going up the mountain somewhere uh no no I can't imagine that. So what do people need to know about this recruitment? What, what information do you want to get across? How do they sign up? How do they become a part of it? 
So we're broadcasting live a virtual information session on March 8th from 1.30 to 2.30. You don't need to pre-register. It's on YouTube. Just come on out and, and watch it. Stay for as long as you can. Um, and uh, it's open to everyone. But of course, we are really focusing this on uh, attracting more females into our, into our industry. And our recruitment season runs from the 3rd of March to the 23rd of March. And again, like I said, we're looking for an opportunity to engage more women into a transit career and to build a workforce that's super reflective of the community that we serve. Maureen Cosson Heath with us, Director of Transit HSR, looking for drivers March 8th specifically for women, and you can find out more on their website. Maureen, thanks for the time. Good luck. No problem. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. People who also have been watching the world spin, uh, the great people at Leger, uh, I've been fascinated talking to all the different polling uh, companies and such about various stages of this pandemic, and now we're into a world conflict. Are you kidding? Can we get a bit of a break with this stuff? Uh, a new online survey by Leger. Uh, a lot of Canadians aren't very optimistic about uh, what is going on in Ukraine, and there's certainly lots of reason to have those feelings let's bring in dave schultz executive vice president leger with us now dave thanks for the time i hope you're well i am thank you scott how does this play on us coming out of a global pandemic for two years we kind of get you know oh some light at the tunnel there's daisies on the other side of that door and now we're heading into this well it's just you know stress and anxiety built on top of it all we're actually going to be going out the next little while and doing another measure of mental health uh, mental health check-in on Canadians, because um, it's it's getting to be a bit much for a lot of people, is what we're starting to hear. Uh, so this was a online survey, so uh, certainly a bit more room for error here. Usually, I'm guessing because people want to participate on this as opposed to a random situation. Uh, but but what did you learn? How are we feeling about what's going on in Ukraine? Um, so this was how we would normally do our polling. So when we have an accurate election result, we're doing it by the same method. So this is a good a good look at how Canadians are at. And 89% of us say that we are concerned about what's happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And concerned enough to a point where two-thirds of Canadians feel that this has the potential to develop into a world war. So there's a lot of stress and anxiety around where this is where this is really going to go uh, as as it progresses. Um, that said, we uh, you know we are looking for stronger economic sanctions. Uh, we're looking for, to a certain degree, can Canadians start to negotiate a peaceful compromise? Twenty one percent of Canadians said that. So there are things that Canada feels we could be doing to move forward to help with the situation. What about military? Obviously, that's been uh, a great debate. Uh, obviously, uh, Ukraine, not a NATO country, and many are saying, um, you, you know, make it a no-fly zone. But unfortunately, what that does is set up uh, NATO NATO aircraft against Russian aircraft, therefore uh, triggering, theoretically, World War III. What about, how do we feel about the military involvement in this? Yeah, so half of Canadians said that we should, we could, we should be involved from a military perspective, but only as part of a joint NATO force. Yeah. So not Canada by itself, but if NATO starts to get involved, then we, then we should be there as well. Which is interesting, because that's more than people who think we need to have stronger economic sanctions. That's only at 45%. So Canadians are starting to lead a little bit towards that joint NATO force uh, military perspective. 
Uh, th- that means, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm, you would know more about this, obviously, than I do. But would that make it appear that uh, as the conflict accelerates, those numbers could increase? I would think so. And it's interesting. A lar- and a large part of that comes from where is our support? So 83% of Canadians say they firmly support Ukraine in the process, and 15, and which doesn't seem like a huge number. It's not everyone. It's 83%, but 15% support support neither. So they they don't mm. want to. They didn't want to answer that question. And only two percent of Canadians say that they support Russia and the conflict. But when you start looking, we also asked because um, Putin has a, a justification for why he's doing this. His He's gone on record as saying he's trying to protect the people of Ukraine from bullying and genocide. Uh, so when we asked people about that statement and uh, whether they believe he's telling the truth or whether he's lying, uh, 74% of Canadians feel he's lying. It's less than the percentage of people who support uh, Ukraine. So there's still, there's still people who are supporting Ukraine, but not necessarily fully on board with it. So I think as things start to change, as our support strengthens for Ukraine, you may see more of that military perspective come into play. This is fascinating because it's almost like there's so much information now, uh, uh, you know, from a research standpoint, especially after going through a pandemic. As you sit, I mean, where from your vantage point, Dave, how would you how would you uh, critique where Canadians are considering where our moods have been and how they've shifted through a pandemic and now going into this conflict uh, as well? How would you gauge Canadian psyche right now? Well, this is why I think we're going to do another survey on the mental health check-in because we've been tracking it throughout COVID and it has not been very positive with a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. Um, And, you know, if you remember back in December, there was a bit of an uplift in terms of people starting to feel better. Things were starting to open up and then the Omicron carpet got pulled out from underneath our feet. Back in a lockdown, we saw a big drop in mental health. And you're, you're talking about in the next hour, you've got a discussion about how do you get back out into the real world again? Well, we're going back out into a real world with this stress and anxiety of, you know, two-thirds of Canadians feel there could be a global conflict. And, and, that's, uh, and you know, and so does that, does that change how we're going to interact with people? Does that keep us in our houses or does it make us want to go out more? It'll, it'll definitely inf- impact how we're going to behave over the next little while. Okay, so let me come at it from this angle then. Uh, we've certainly, I was watching bits and pieces of uh, Joe Biden's State of the Union address. At one point, my goodness, both sides of the House, uh, vigorous applause. Uh, do you think a conflict like this resets us after a pandemic and perhaps unites us? I would, I, I don't have an answer to that. I would hope so. Um, it would be great to see something like that start to happen. I'm buoyed a little bit. So we asked, one of the things we asked is about confidence and leadership, if there was a global conflict. And uh, when you first look at the numbers, it's uh, there's only 37% of Canadians feel confident that Trudeau could lead us through a, a, a conflict with Russia. But that's more than people voted for the Liberal Party during the last election. Hmm. So that was only at 33%. So there is a... Uh, and, and there's been a lot of negativity around Trudeau from people who didn't vote for the Liberals. So there is seem to be some extra effort that maybe this government can handle it, as opposed to wanting to vote for them. Uh, so maybe that's a little bit of a precursor for where we're going with your statement. Maybe we'll start to come together more. 
Here's hoping. Uh, my goodness. Uh, Dave Schultz with his executive VP of Leger talking about the mood of Canadians. No, not after a pandemic. No, not after a uh, convoy through uh, and protest through Ottawa. But now with the Ukraine uh, crisis after a Russian invasion. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, I I heard this, I saw this headline today, and, uh, you know, I'm not a religious guy, so um, that's where I'm coming from on this. Uh, but I certainly respect all of those of you that are, and, and you're right in, in, in so to, to practice your faith, and, and I attend whenever I can and, and enjoy the experience. Um, but w- when, I, when I saw this headline, I just, I, I, I really didn't know how to react uh, uh, from it. Uh, and that is that, uh, that the Hamilton, uh, Hamilton Wentworth District Catholic School Board has decided that they're going to fly uh, the pride flag for the first time ever. Uh, which, uh, you know, congratulations, uh, good for them. And, and this is, you know, talking about Pride Month, which is coming up in June. And, you know, we certainly know what a, uh, a huge debate this has been and, 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 and what an issue it has been for both practicing and non-practicing Catholics and those that, like me, don't have any skin in the game at all. Um, but you know, when I, when I think of a headline like this, I, I think, well, that's great. And, and all the positivity that comes with that and the acceptance and acceptance and such of all of that, but it is 2022. So, uh, how inclusive, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I just think, you know, uh, welcome, welcome, welcome to 2022 is, I guess, uh, the point that I'm trying to make. And, um, you know, I understand that this is a, an incredibly polarizing or can be a, a very polarizing issue um, within in the community and such. But uh, the reality is the reality. And um, I, I think we have to live with the reality. And that is uh, we are all equal on on the planet. And and um, again, it's great that uh uh, the uh, the Catholic school board and and those in Hamilton have um, have done the the work and and made this happen because I'm sure it was not easy. I'm sure it was not easy. Um, uh, but again, um, I would just kind of do it and move on. I don't know if I would. Woohoo! Woohoo! Look where we are! Look where we are! It's like well. <laughs> about time about time uh and again it's uh it's a very contentious issue but um at the end of the day i think the rest of society uh settled this a long time ago and i mean obviously there's fringe elements and such but uh it's nice to see finally uh, uh not only not only those who are of the Catholic faith, but those that, that teach it in schools have finally realized that um, not everybody is the same. Uh, not everybody is necessarily like uh, them or us or me or you or any of that. Um, and, um, you know, kudos, kudos to them. I'll, uh, I'll leave it with that. Kudos to them for um, doing the work uh, and, and whatever it is that they had to do in order to make this all happen. Uh, but again, I, I'm not sure too many people should be patting themselves on the back uh, because this is uh, 
this is long, long overdue. All right, uh, still to come, we're going to talk to uh, Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. Love having him on and talking about the latest uh, world crisis and where we are. And also going to bring in Dr. Jess O'Reilly, sexologist, relationship expert. What's it like now? I mean, you know, we, we it's like we've all been in uh, in solitary confinement for two years, or certainly what has felt like that. And now all of a sudden you want to get out. Think of people who are of young dating age or, or people not even young dating age <laughs> people that are on you know uh middle aged and such and and trying to get back out and and meet people uh, how difficult is that during a global pandemic has the protocol changed do you hug do you kiss uh and, and <laughs> will sent me an article uh that uh i opened this up and it was uh i guess from cnn and this was dated back in september of 2020 and uh, Canada's top doctor advises that uh, you should wear a mask while having sex and avoid kissing new people. So that was the headline, September 3rd, 2020. How far have we come? And does it matter? Uh, we'll have that discussion coming up a little later on. John is on the line. John, uh, John what are your thoughts? Uh, I say keep the increase happening on April 1st or whenever April is. Scott, it was five months ago. We just re-elected this government. Five months ago. The problem we have with Canadians is they complain so much, but when push comes to shove, at the ballot box, one of two things happens. They don't bother showing up. Or two, they vote for they voted for Trudeau. I'll bet you if you did a poll, ask how many people, if they voted for Trudeau, it would be an overwhelming no, and everybody voted. So either there was... There was a fraud that happened at the ballot box, or people no. lying. Canadians need to look in the mirror, up because what's going to happen is people will start losing their jobs or can't afford certain things because the only thing that's going to stop inflation, and this is where the gas prices is inflation, is a recession. When will Canadians wake up? That's the problem. We complain so much, but when push comes to shove, we don't do it. Look at municipal politics. They don't show up to the ballot box, but everyone complains. Good point. Thanks for the call, John. Much appreciated. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University, to talk about what's going on in the world and his thoughts and such. Henry, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well, Scott. So here we are, Henry. We're in day eight of uh, of this Russian invasion of Ukraine. It seems to have slowed down a bit, although uh, Kershaw, uh, a port city, has fallen of about a quarter of a million people. What are your What are your thoughts about where we are one week into this? Well, I think basically the, I mean, the consensus is is that this is the whole thing has gone slower than uh, Putin expected. Uh, he's getting great, um, you know, resistance from the Ukrainians. It seems to get stronger and stronger. Uh, I think he, you know, that he expected them just to to roll over when they saw all those tanks coming in, and uh, he was really serious about taking over the whole country. And instead, they got they got angry. It's, it's something like the English did when. Hitler thought, well, I'll just bomb the hell out of the cities, and they'll be so unhappy, they'll just give up. Well, it, it made the English even more more and more angry, and they were, were willing to give more sacrifices. And we should see the same thing with the Ukrainians now. So that's, okay. that's, been a, that's a big thing. That's a big thing, I think, that's happened. 
obviously there's a fine line here between where we are now and uh, another world war, and that is NATO. Obviously, Ukraine not a part of NATO, uh, but certainly uh, the the countries that surround are and have have been fortified with NATO forces. Uh, People are saying, go in and help Ukraine. We can't go in there anymore. That's an invasion. That will trigger, trigger World War III. How does... Putin trigger that. I mean, do the, does the rest of NATO just watch them literally burn Ukraine to the ground, or at some point do they go, all right, enough's enough? Well, with the resistance and with, of course, the economic sanctions, were you putting the pinch on both the, the, the wealthy billionaires who are all around around uh, <clears throat> Putin, but also, I mean, with the sanctions, the, the Russians can't buy anything. They yeah. can't sell anything to the outside world. That's so that all you know, they really depend on the outside world uh, to uh, provide all sorts of manufactured goods they don't have, and they're, so they're just going to have all sorts of uh, uh, um, you know cha- real problems in being able to run the country. Uh, the you know the the value of the ruble has dropped very dramatically. People can't use ATMs. They can't order things from outside outside the country. Uh, it's a time of year when a lot of Russians, middle-class Russians, go to warm climates, and they can't go because there's no, you know, the, the Russian planes can't take them anywhere, and no one else is going to take them anywhere. So you're, you're going to see a sl- uh, this grinding down of the uh, of the uh, of Russian economy, and uh, you know, and even you know, for manufactured parts to repair the repair their army, uh, and uh, we're, we're, what we're also seeing is how. How much? How uh, how bad in, in some respects is the military equipment that the uh, that the Russians have? When we we have pictures, amazing how we have you know all these reporters on the ground or people taking film, and we can see you know tanks breaking down on Russia going in Russia going towards mm-hmm. the Ukraine, and they're just pushed off to the side because something broke down and they can't fix it. So they they're just they're just littered along the side of the road. And uh, yeah, so they're going to their parts are going to be a problem, uh, all all sorts of things like that. So you think the sanctions and such will have pressure? What about pressure from Russian people as they slowly try to figure this out? Uh, we've just had the uh, International Paralympic Committee mm-hmm. say Russia and Belarus are out. What do you think the Russian? Uh, you know, obviously they're con- uh, Russia's controlling what they're hearing, but as as info le- uh, leaks in, uh, h- how do you think the Russians are going to respond? Well, they, they, they're trying to arrest people, but you get more and more people who are going out on the streets, particularly in the cities. The, the big problem, I mean, when they talk about Russian public opinion, they say, oh, well, they, they listen to uh, the, you know, the propaganda that's on the state, you know, the Russian TV and radio stations, and they've shut down all the independent ones, and the people, uh, half the, at least half the population believes what Putin's saying. Those tend to be people out in the rural areas. Who essentially, you know, the farmers and they're far away. You know, they they hear this. They don't have competing uh, pieces of information. But when you get into the big Russian cities, beginning with Moscow, you know, information is getting gets around, and people there are there. They're being inconvenienced. They're probably feeling embarrassed to be a Russian because they're they're seeing the pictures that we see of all the destruction and the of of, of the residences in uh, in the Ukraine. Those are coming back. And it's just making people, you know, they feel morally outraged. They're inconvenienced, and uh, you know, as they as the economy starts to, you know, become more and more sluggish, and they can't get things, 
I just think they're going to become more and more angry. So it's really, I just think it's going to wear down. And I just, uh, I, it, it, I don't, I think he completely misunderstood. He thought he had a, it take him a week to do something and and put mm. Ukraine under. And even even if he, all the troops spread all across Ukraine, it's a large country. I mean, it is a you know, it's it's a country as big as Texas. Yeah. And, and, and maybe many talked about how the urban density, how difficult that's going to be. Uh, yeah, obviously, right. if it gets to that point, hopefully it doesn't. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Okay, same to you, Scott. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've got a little bit for that uh, of that for you right now. Uh, and because we, we've been in a pandemic for a couple of years, uh, my goodness, you know, I had a friend of mine that said families weren't supposed to spend this much time together. Uh, meaning, you know, having a couple of kids and the parents in the house. But look at it from the other extreme. What if you were single, no matter what age you were? Uh, or are, and all of a sudden a global pandemic hits. What the heck happens? Uh, let's bring in Dr. Jess O'Reilly, sexologist and relationship expert, sexwithdrjess.com to find out more. She is with us now. Jess, it's so great to talk to you. I don't think I've talked to you for two years. It has been a while, but you didn't change the entrance music. So I'm, I'm running into the <laughs> ring, just kind of like swaying into that music. Thank you to you and Will. Uh, it was funny because I said to Will, I said, oh, you've got to learn line up Marvin Gaye's sexual healing. And he said, well, I had Let's Get Down Tonight. So he was almost on, he was almost with us, almost on the same plane, which is hilarious. So, Jess, let's talk about this because obviously we know about the protocol and what has been going on uh, for the last two years. My producer sent me a actually a, uh, a link from a CNN article from 2022 that said a Canadian doctor suggested that you have a mask on. Well, having sex, what's it been like to negotiate this pandemic, especially if you're a single person? Well, I don't think many people were wearing masks in the bedroom, although, you know, there's <laughs> the people who do it for the kinky side and all the sure. power to them. Uh, you know, it's been both emotionally draining, relationally draining, practically draining. And of, co- of course, many people have been going through their sexual dry spells. Uh, so many of my clients have still not got gone back to dating because they're just not feeling ready. And now we've got this, you know, next uh, transition as they're preparing to go back and they're feeling really overwhelmed. Like it's, it's not only that, you know, we're nervous about the, the virus itself or whatever the consequences of that may be, but also we're just out of practice, right? Like we barely know mm. whether to shake someone's hand. You walk up to someone in the office and you have to ask first, Hey, are we shaking? Are we hugging? What are we doing here? And I mean, it's not a bad practice to normalize, but it is uh, definitely, as they say, the new normal. That was my next point, because you don't know whether you should, before it was, do I hug this person now because of political correctness? Is this now acceptable behavior? But now it's become a medical issue. Do I just give them a knuckle bump? Do you have to lay (laughs) down this protocol before you go out on a date? Actually, yeah. So I think that's one of the advantages of the fact that so many people are meeting online now. And sometimes it's easier for people to say what they're comfortable with over text to say like, you know what, Um, I want to eat outdoors. Now, I know that's not an option in Ontario yet, but soon enough, spring is coming. Mm -hmm. 
or I, I want to, um, I'm, I'm not comfortable, like, you know, going back to somebody's house yet, or I am comfortable with that, but do you mind if we take a quick rapid antigen test? And so what I'm so excited about here, Scott, is that the normalization of these conversations around general safety will hopefully extend to safer sex practices as well, as well. So if we can talk about masks, if we can talk about social distancing, as we have been doing for two years, and don't worry, as soon it's going to be going away, um, to some degree, I'm hoping we can also talk about safety for sex, whether that's condom lube, condoms lube, testing, all of the, those important pieces. You know, that's something I never even thought about, Jess. It's like, wow, do you have a condom? No. Do you have a PC? Do you have a test? Do you have a rapid <laughs> test handy? Well, I got my, I'm ready for my Saturday night. I got my rapid test and I got my condom. I mean, how do you decide? How do you decide? How do you even get to the sex part if, you know, you're, you're feeling awkward, just even, you know, not knowing whether to hug or shake hands or what the heck to do? Well, actually, the awkwardness is what makes it exciting. We, you know, in long-term relationships, especially in Western cultures, we're always trying to eliminate the tension, eliminate the awkwardness. And that's, you know, a big part of the reason why relationships get boring. So I say, go ahead and lean into the awkwardness. Not only is it great practice to be in your zone of discomfort, but it also is going to make things exciting. Because people will ask that, you know, pre-pandemic as well. How do we like get over the awkwardness of the first date? And my advice is like leaning into it, enjoy it, enjoy that awkwardness. You know, when you get butterflies in your stomach, you've had butterflies when you like met someone you were excited about, mm. right? Yes, absolutely. So people well, think so, that so butterflies you're... are... Uh, you know, a sign that something is like really important to you or a sign that you found the right one. But butterflies are actually a stress reaction, right? When you're unsure of something, when you're excited, when you're worried that somebody's going to reject you, your digestive tract and your uh, sphincters near your butt also start to <laughs> contract and that creates butterflies. So it's not true love. It's just those uh, sphincters contracting. So maybe make this feel like it's the first time. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about going to the office for the first time and she, they were, there was a few people on the call. They were all saying like, they didn't know what to wear. It kind of felt like you were back in the first day of school. And, hmm. uh, you know, I, I know that this, the stress isn't always positive, but a little bit of stress can be a little bit exciting. And especially as the stress is more positive today than it was a year ago or, you know, two years ago now, almost two years ago. So are you saying that uh, the sweatpants aren't sexy anymore as they, as they were during the pandemic? Listen, Scott, I am standing here in my fleece sweatpants feeling like <laughs> a sexy beast. Um, no, I'm not suggesting that people need to change change the way they dress. Hopefully we can dress up our leisure wear and be accepting it, in it. Um, I've, one interesting thing that I've been hearing, especially from women, is that over the last two years, they've been really comfortable, right? They haven't been wearing underwire bras mm. or bras at all. They haven't been wearing heels. They're not wearing tight-fitting Band-Aid-style dresses. And they're saying, I just can't go back to it. And they're going to find a way to, to feel sensual, to feel however it is they want to feel, whether that be sexy or feminine or powerful, without these devices that, you know, many of us consider torture devices. You know, yeah, you're right. This could be a rebirth. So let me, we, we've been talking about how people are very cautious or may feel apprehensive or awkward about getting back into this. At the beginning of the pandemic, when we were coming out, of, I don't know, one of the waves, I can't remember, whatever, but people thought this was going to be like the roaring 20s all over again and woo, everybody's going nuts. And of course, that didn't happen. Could we see the opposite, that now we are sort of in the endemic stage and it looks like, you know, knock on wood, it's over, that people are just going to throw caution to the wind and go nuts? 
Uh, I would be surprised if people are going to throw caution to the wind when it comes to their health status. Are they going to throw caution to the wind when it comes to finances? You know, we've seen some of that overspending Mm. already happening, stimulation um, in various areas of the economy. But I don't, my belief, at least with the clients that I'm talking to, is that I don't think they're going to take additional risks. In fact, we're going to see people who continue to take precautions even when they are not government or environmentally mandated. So for example, uh, you know, we still have to wear masks on a plane, but if they do lift that as they have, you know, some airlines overseas have actually lifted that mandate, you're still going to see people wearing masks on the plane because it's what makes them comfortable. And let's just remember that across the globe, and I know that we've politicized mask wearing, but I'm not, we're not talking about politics here. We're talking about people's personal comfort. Um, You know, across the globe, in Asian countries, they've been wearing masks for many, many years to protect themselves and to protect others when they're in crowded spaces, when they're feeling a little sniffly, um, when they they just can't afford to get sick. Like most of us have been on, those of us who travel, we've been on flights and gotten the common cold. And now that I think about it, I'm like, hey, if I could avoid that, if I could you know, reduce my risk of that, I might continue with these safety precautions. Okay, so we've only got a few seconds left. We're kind of running over time, but advice for those that are about to head, a, how to head out on a new date. Okay, figure out what you want and let this person know ahead of time so that you've already set the expectations. And then if you change your mind, you can simply let them know, but know that whatever you're feeling, it's totally cool. Don't let other people judge you. Dr. Jess O'Reilly with us, sexologist and relationship expert, sexwithdrjess.com on getting back out. Jess, great to talk to you again. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, and was a speechwriter for former Prime Minister Stephen Harper with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. I can't go uh, go on, Michael, but without first asking you about your thoughts on what's happening with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the way our leaders are handling all of this. What, what are your thoughts as we enter day eight here? Yeah, it's, it's obviously a very difficult situation. That's not a profound way to start the statement, but I think it's probably the most clear way to look at it as well. Um, it, it's been it's stunning to watch, discouraging in other parts heartbreaking at times, and frustrating by and large. And the frustration is more in the fact that, you know, we're watching, you know, Russia and Ukraine fight pretty hard. You see at times certain pieces of territory have gone, or in certain cities have gone back and forth. It now appears as if Russia has captured Kherson, although, you know, there were reports last night they may not have, but I think we'll probably go along with the general line that they have. Um, Kiev thankfully, does not seem to be uh, any worse for wear than it was before. There's obviously been a lot of bombing and attacking, but the Russians have not made many gains there, whereas in the first day or two of this war, or invasion if you like, um, they they seem to be getting a bit closer, uh, but that hasn't really happened as much now. So, again, a lot of these things are up in the air. I mean, the interesting thing obviously has been is that you know, Russia thought they would steamroll and move right ahead and have already ended this war, and they've come nowhere near it. It's day eight, as you correctly pointed out, and it's a long way away from ending. You know, there's obviously been a tentative agreement put in place by Russia and Ukraine, and maybe you've already discussed it, where they're going to try to get humanitarian aid to people in places that have been hit very badly during the fighting, which is fine, and certainly I think 
most people who have a rational brain would realize that the Ukrainians will follow through, whether Vladimir Putin and Russia will is another matter in itself. Uh, and in terms of the international response, you know, I, I think many people are looking and saying, well, why hasn't, say, NATO played a much more active yeah. role? Why are world leaders, yeah, they're, they're saying the right things. They're making the certain the points that, you know, the general populace wants to hear about sympathy for Ukraine and otherwise. But we need a more active role. And the fact is that we understand why a lot of world leaders, no matter where it is, it could be the U.S. or Canada, it could be the U.K., Germany, France, and others, for historical reasons, for private reasons, for personal reasons, they don't want to get involved in a European-wide war, and they don't want something to escalate even further in that. The difference is, or the fact really of the matter is, we've already escalated beyond that point. That was my next point. Uh, many have said, hey, because it's not a NATO country, if we go in there uh, and start engaging Russian military with NATO equipment, it becomes World War Three. Some have said that that's already started. What side of this battle do you want to be on? Is this inevitable? Well, I mean, I don't think we have to go as far as World War III. I mean, that's that's a completely separate equation, but or discussion, I guess, in itself. I guess the um, point that I'm making is, is though, should NATO countries do more and go into yeah. Ukraine? Well, absolutely. Look, the Ukraine should have been part of NATO already. Ukraine is not only is it a large enough and an important enough country, it has, a, you know, a fairly big military. Yeah, not as big, obviously, as Russia, but certainly not small. It has a lot of economic gains. It has natural gas and oil. It has safety and security, or at least its interest in safety and security at the same level as others. The difference has been, as we know, and it's no big secret, is that Vladimir Putin has not wanted Ukraine either in NATO or in the European Union, for that matter. They they basically just want to isolate it. And the reason is, really, Vladimir Putin's goal, and basically since day one, was, was to rebuild the old Soviet Union piece by piece, but place it into modern Russia. So, of course, he didn't want Ukraine to have more power, more respect, more ability to make decisions for decision making and whatnot. Um, but, yeah. I so why would Ukraine just not join up? I agree. You know, Ukraine has already said it wants to join the EU. Why? Why yeah. hasn't it stepped up and, and made the effort to join NATO? Why have the, why wasn't this done earlier? Well, it has nothing to do with them. They would have done it. It was, it was Putin. It's, Vladimir yeah. Putin did not want the Ukraine to do, do anything. Right, he basically right. wanted to have, he wanted to hamstring them. And he did for many years. And people cowered in fear because they felt that, you know, the mighty Russian army and Vladimir Putin, God knows what they can do. I think we've learned in eight days, even if Russia ultimately wins this battle, is that the Russian army is a pale imitation of the old Soviet army. There's nothing, hmm. there's no comparison to that. And as we know, after Perestroika and Glasnost in the early 90s, when countries started to, you know, move into Russia to obviously help out in terms of building capitalist entities and otherwise, they discovered, that, you know, that the Soviet Union was unsurprisingly just a whole bunch of myths and lies where they found rusted agriculture, like rusted yeah. tractors sitting out in fields. There was nothing there. And so let me ask you this, the Michael. Let me... The second time. Let me ask you this. Um, we, this is obviously a war uh, where energy is playing a massive role because yeah. Russia controls the, the gas going into Europe. Will this change Canada's policy on energy, knowing that we could be helping here, but we've shut everything down? Well, in fairness, Russia did control it, but with the economic sanctions in place and the fact that a lot of countries are not going to buy from them, they are actually their influence is going to go way, way down. But yes, I agree that this battle with Ukraine 
although I certainly believe it's because Putin just wants to resemble the old communist dictators, Peter the Great and others, and build an empire. Yes, I mean, obviously, oil and gas has played a major role. I don't deny that. Um, will, that cha- will that change policy here, do you think? It might. I mean, obviously, you know, Canada has not... Canada obviously has a lot of interest in the environment in general, especially under this current regime and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government. But at the same time, they've played the same game that everybody else has, is that, you know, don't upset Vladi because God knows what could happen. Well, maybe it's time we start upsetting Vladi. Maybe, Hmm. you know, maybe these, if not in these eight days or however long this unfortunate Russian invasion of Ukraine goes on for, Maybe we have learned a lesson here, if nothing else, that we cannot let people like Vladimir Putin control the way we think about safety, security strategy, oil and gas and the environment, etc. I mean, if that's, if that's something we haven't learned from this, I, I just don't know how, because, you know, I jokingly said with others that, you know, for many years, it looks like we were governed by a whole variety of Neville Chamberlains, if you want to go back in history. You know, the, the reason that World War II, or at least that Adolf Hitler, the, you know, the, of Nazi, mm. in the, the German Chancellor of Nazi Germany, moved into the Sudetenland was basically because a lot of leaders, including then UK Prime Minister Neville yeah. Chamberlain, wanted to deal with them. They didn't want to enter another war, having coming out of World War I. Sometimes you just can't go that way. And I know it's easy for people to say that sitting in their, you know, in their armchairs where we live in a country like Canada where there's no conscription. Obviously, mm. you, I, and many others don't have to go to war. We don't have to take up arms if we don't wish to. I know it's simple to say, but the problem is that we can't ignore these things any longer, Scott, and I think we've ignored it too long. So, yeah, Canada has to change their position. To get back to your initial question, yeah, they really do. Canada has to look at the... i got to cut you off there, Michael. We're plum out of time. Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media and Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. International Criminal Court uh, looking into war crimes in regard to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, significance of that? Does it mean anything? Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Lubomir Luchik, professor with the Royal Military College researching geopolitics, Ukraine, refugee migration and such, and is with us now. Lubomir, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's been uh, an unfortunately very busy couple of days, as you can imagine. I can I can only imagine. What are your thoughts on what you're seeing here by day eight? Is it just a matter of time before Ukraine falls? No, I don't think so. Uh, about a week and a half or so ago, I wrote an article in the Global Mail in which I suggested that Putin had won the war by, in effect, demonstrating to the Ukrainians that they stood alone. Since then, of course, much of the West has stepped up finally to the plate, begun providing Ukraine with much needed munitions. Not enough yet, frankly, they need to provide more. But Ukraine has demonstrated, I think, unmistakably, that it does not intend to cave in to uh, this Russian war of aggression, this genocidal war that Mr. Putin has launched against Ukraine. So I think now Mr. Putin has actually lost the war, no matter what territorial uh, acquisitions he may be able to uh, make in the next couple of days. He has lost the war psychologically, spiritually, morally. Um, The Russian troops being sent into battle are um, poorly trained. They're not motivated. Many of them have been killed. Many of them have been captured. 
The Ukrainians, of course, are taking losses as well, but they are demonstrating to the world a resilience, a, a resistance that is, you know, frankly, truly remarkable. So no matter what the, you know, outcome on the ground may be, Putin has lost this war. Unfortunately, he's also destabilized the security structures of Europe. Europe will never be the same again. This is more consequential in the long run than uh, 9-11. I don't think this is Ukraine's Alamo, if I can use that analogy. But if it is, uh, the losses that Ukraine suffers now will echo forward in time with unanticipated consequences that uh, frankly make me fear for the future of world peace, certainly peace in but- but you feel that without uh, NATO forces actually going in there, because many have said, you know, a no-fly zone, but we know that would trigger World War III and such. So are, are you think there's a chance that Ukraine, with military support, hardware, uh, munitions and such from NATO, that they can hold off Russia? Yes, I think they can. What they need now are more anti-tank and anti-air missiles. They need more anti Anti, anti-missiles, as it were, missiles to uh, defeat the, the kind of Iron Dome um, uh, system that, uh, for example, Israel has. They, but they need more of that kind of thing, anti-tank missiles, anti-aircraft missiles, um, and they will be able to certainly blunt the offensive, if not, in fact, roll it back. I do not believe that Mr. Putin's implicit threat of nuclear, you know, exchanges is 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 real i think he's somewhat delusional um i don't think that the russian military chain of command would follow an order to launch a nuclear missile that is not going Mm. to happen i think the proposal of a no-fly zone is actually credible you can tell the russians that remove your air power from the territory over ukraine by such and such a time, such and such a date, let them clear out and then impose the no-fly zone. You could also impose it partially over part of Ukraine or part of the territory, perhaps over the cities. Um, why are we so afraid of that? Because if we're afraid of defending a nation of 44, 45 mm. million people fighting the aggressor, and everybody agrees Russia has invaded Ukraine and it's not the other way around, there's no justification for this. If we won't stand with Ukraine now, are you telling me we're going to stand with Estonia, which is part of the NATO alliance? You really think yeah. so? Yeah, I don't no, think valid, so. valid points. How concerned are you that if, you know, you said already, uh, no matter what happens, Vladimir Putin has lost the war. How concerned are you if this man's backed into a corner, what he'll do? You just said you don't fear the nukes angle because you don't think his 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 officials will follow uh, his guidance and such. But what happens when this man's blocked in, or backed into a corner? Oh, well, I mean, first of all, backed into a corner is a nice way of making it, you know, it's, it's very kind of edgy. Oh, he's backed into a corner. He's going to fight even harder. He's the invader. Behind him, that so-called corner is one sixth of the Earth's land surface. He's not trapped anywhere. All he has to do is withdraw back to his own territories into the so-called Russian Federation. But as you as you said, doctor, he's not going to do that because his pride's at stake. So his own, I'm thinking his only direction is forward. Well, his direction, yes. In that sense, yes, it may be. And there is some credible uh, information coming in. Literally, I was talking to people in Ukraine this morning, um, you know, that he may escalate. He's running out of missiles, believe it or not. He's running out of the kind of precision weapons that have targeted 
uh, airfields, military installations, you know, that sort of thing. He's been targeting civilians. As he now uh, runs out of those precision munitions, which take a long time to replenish, by the way, and as the Ukrainians run out of defensive weaponry, anti-aircraft missiles and so on, Mr. Putin is likely to go to bombing raids, uh, carpet bombing. They're, that's what they're afraid of in Kiev this morning, that he'll start just dropping, you know, they'll just start dropping yeah. bombs on Kiev and then bombs drop from aircraft to land all over the place. So civilians will be killed in large numbers. So he is, he said, he said himself that his, in his so-called victory speech that was prematurely released, that he intends to erase Ukraine from the map of Europe. That's called yeah. genocide. Ukrainians are not Russians. Russians aren't Ukrainians. Yes, they have a historical past together and linguistic and cultural ties, but they are not the same. They're not the same. I mean, Spaniards and Portuguese aren't the same. They have historical uh, experiences in common. That doesn't mean anything. In the 21st century, Mr. Putin is launching what amounts to a genocidal war against Ukraine. And the world is sitting here going, well, you know, we're afraid that if we if we put boots on the ground and we put aircraft in the air, this is going to start World War Three. Folks, it's already there. Europe's yeah, finished as it as you and I knew it. It doesn't mean that Europe's going to be a runner or anything like that. But the peace of Europe has been undermined. This man has broken the rules-based international order. He has torn up the UN Charter. He is a war criminal. He is an individual who really should appear, as along with many of his officials, before the International Court of Justice at The Hague and to stand trial for what he has already done. And it I think we've lost him. Dr. Lubomir Luchik with us, professor with the Royal Military of College, uh, Royal Military College, researching geopolitics, Ukraine, refugee migration, and the former Soviet Union. Fascinating discussion. We'll have the doctor back. Let's move on and bring in Elliot Tepper, political science, Carleton University, uh, and, and talk about the significance of the International Paralympic Committee saying Russia and Belarus are out. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. So your thoughts on uh, the IPC, the International Paralympic uh, Committee. Initially, they had said that they uh, these teams could participate without their colors. Now they've said, nope, they're gone completely. Uh, it seems kind of odd that uh, that this stance wasn't take during uh, Beijing, but obviously no invasion at that point. But certainly the two presidents of Russia and China were chatting about this. Uh, is, this is there any significance to this uh, decision by the IPC? Yes, there is a significance in that it's one more element, one more example, uh, one more piece of evidence that sanctions are going to be very widespread and they're going to reach into unexpected areas. In this case, the IOC has been reluctant to bring politics to the games, as they put it, but uh, politics has been brought to the game. So it is one more indicator that the sanctions regime, which has been put in place within eight days, uh, is very far reaching indeed. What would China's reaction be to this? China's probably not pleased, but they, on the other hand, are, uh, have other things to think about in regards to how are they going to relate to the global reaction. And uh, we do have to keep in mind correctly that it's not, to, it's not global in the sense that China and Southeast Asia and other regions may not have the same position as democracies. I was going to say the West, but, you know, Japan, South Korea. Uh, Taiwan are in there. But uh, what we do see is that 
sanctions have been very widespread. Uh, China has just on February 4th signed a, a, a very far-reaching set of agreements with, with um, Putin, in a sense, saying, we've got your back. And Putin saying, well, we've got your back. It's a very detailed, long document. And uh, now we see that China has to reconsider because they are part of the global economy in a, in a much greater way than Russia. How much are they going to back Russia now? And we see this in, a, in the case of uh, the Olympics, the Paralympics. How far are they going to go in, in uh, dealing with the rest of the world, which has a far greater impact on them economically than their bilateral relations with Russia? So is China going to let Russia drag them down? Because clearly in the last 25 years, China has become a powerhouse, whereas pretty much Russia's flatlined since, you know, we had Gorbachev bring down the wall. Um, so does, does China even want to be associated with this? They certainly want to be associated with Russia uh, up to a point, up to where, where the sanctions regime, which has been put in place, might start to impinge on them and make them look bad. There's also another issue. Um, We'll come back to the making them look bad, but this is a very important year for China. They want stability this year because Xi Jinping, far more than any other issue, is including their relationship with Russia, far more than any other issue, is concerned with having a very calm build up to his October 20th Party Congress, where he will be right. confirmed basically leader for life. And he does not want anything to interfere with that. So is this just a matter of time? Uh, our last guest on, as our caller had suggested, said that uh, Putin has already lost the war, whether he takes Ukraine or not, and this is going to completely destabilize Europe and such. Um, is it just a matter of time before Ukraine falls? Because some have said if they were going to do it, they would have done it by now. They're having difficulty. Uh, and obviously there's more ammo coming in from NATO for uh, to support Ukraine, uh, although not necessarily on the ground. Um, where do you see this going? I mean, is it just a matter of time before it does fall and then Putin's got to deal with well, the mess? Yes, let's let's bridge over to that subject because that is actually the, the focus of the globe now. But we're talking about China. I believe China is the ultimate winner in all this because they've already agreed to uh, backstop Russia on the way to this, giving them a backdoor to sanctions. They've signed a 30-year deal to take uh, Russian oil and gas, the energy supplies, and also a lot of wheat. So also the uh, pressure being exerted by the West and by democracies around the world on Russia is to squeeze them financially, and that's because of the control of the dollars. And uh, what we've seen is that China has been offering an alternative. They have their own uh, currency, the yuan. They want to slowly but steadily expand their various instruments, including their uh, substitution of their um, currency for the dollar currency as a reserve currency of the globe. But moving now to your question in regard to what's going to happen in Ukraine, we aren't certain what's going to happen in Ukraine, except that all the signs are that it's going to get much, much, much worse there mm. than it has been already. We've seen that the initial assumption, keeping in mind nobody really under, nobody has an insight into the mind of Mr. Putin. There's a lot of speculation. Is it the same mind? Has he gone irrational and so forth? But what we do know is that he's gone all in now, Mr. Putin, on taking all of Ukraine. 
it wasn't just the Donbass region. It's not going to just be a yeah. corridor military down to Korea to Crimea. Uh, he has been blunted in his original assumption to the degree we can see it of having a blitz, blitzkrieg quickly ta- taking over the capital city, politically decapitated, possibly by murder of the leadership there, politically decapitating the country, calling off the Ukrainian troops, stand down, will have their own puppet regime. That clearly, that plan, if that was the plan, is gone. Now, uh, we know that Russia has, uh, in Chechnya and in uh, Syria, they know how to subdue a, a civilian population, and it's, uh, and it's, it's extremely brutal. Elliot Tepper with us, uh, Carleton University Political Science, uh, talking about the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict invasion and, of course, China's uh, view of all of this. Uh, Elliot, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Uh, Thank you, Scott, and to you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, I'm exhausted. So uh, Scott Radley's coming in and going to be taking over after the 6 o'clock news. Thank goodness for that. Tag team this guy. I'm out of the ring. Scott, uh, great to have you here. Hope you're having a great day. Today is the day you need to tag team. What's going on today? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just a lot of callers on the air, a lot of stuff going on. And, uh, All right. Yeah. You know, one of those days. All right. So um, we talked about this way back when during the Beijing Olympics when there was that picture of the Russian uh, president and the uh, president of the Chinese Communist Party together uh, working on cooking on some deal. There was rumor floating around at that point that that the Chinese president said to uh, Putin, um, you know what, if you could hold off on this whole Ukraine thing till after the Beijing Olympics, that would be great. Uh, Clearly, uh, Putin didn't get the note about the... uh, uh, the Paralympic Games, uh, and, and now we've seen that the uh, IPC, uh, the Paralympic version of the IOC, has said that's it, Russia's out, uh, Belarus is out. After one time they said they could play, but without their colors. Your thoughts on this? How significant is this? Okay, there's two things there. The first one is how, and we talked about this before, and I've talked about it on my show with a couple of people, how insane is it? that when you know that another country is about to invade another country, your primary concern is just don't do it when it's going to mess up our part. The the amorality of that, immorality of that, and the insanity of that is just, it's beyond description. Like it really is. As opposed to saying, don't do it. You say, just don't screw up our good time. Do it afterwards. You know, don't, 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 whatever in the backyard when we're having our barbecue but when the neighbors are having their barbecue go right ahead that's fine as long as you don't interrupt our good time um as for the other part i'll say this and this is a weird way to answer this question but i've done enough stories talking to enough people who are in paralympics um to know that the one thing they hate more than anything would be for you to go oh i'm so sorry that you're disabled I mean, it, it drives yeah. them insane. It drives them nuts because they are, we're not, like, there's a difference here. They are, they're Paralympians. They have a disability, but it's, they're still excellent athletes, all right? Yeah. It's not just like going out and playing house league hockey. These are great athletes. And so in, a, in the weirdest way, you kind of almost think that the idea that, well, they're Paralympians, so they're not really the same as Olympians. So we can ban the Olympians, but... Oh, these people, yeah. we have to let them participate. That, no, that, that's, that's the exact... So if you're going to say that 
able-bodied athletes are unable to be participating in sporting events because they represent that country, you have to say the same thing about the Paralympians, even if it yeah. costs them their event. They, and, and even though they want to compete, unquestionably, they would want nothing less. They would be more outraged at being dealt the hand of sympathy than being t- treated the same way as an able-bodied athlete. How do you think? Uh, how do you think Russia's reacting to this? How do you think China's reacting to this? Because again, um, you know, like you said, didn't spoil the main party, but certainly have this one. Well, uh, you and I a couple days ago talked about the fact that you know, if you go back and look, even in just recent history, the lengths that Russia has gone to in recent years to cheat on an industrial scale yeah. at the Olympics yeah. in Sochi yeah. and stuff tells you how much international sports glory matters to them. Like, this is not something where they're just, again, saying, hey, guys, go out and have a good time and wear our colors. And if you come back in 35th place, but you had a really good time in the athlete's village, we're happy for you. No, no, no. It's all about winning and having medal ceremonies and having the national anthem and bringing glory to Russia. And so I do think that uh, they won't say it. They're not going to admit that this is driving us. But I, I, I believe that this is, a, in the grand scheme of things, perhaps, not as important as the economic sanctions and everything else. But it's another one of those things that's just going to bug Putin to no end. And, you know, we don't want to walk too far down this, but, you know, if, if China was really willing to say this to Russia, maybe it's time the IOC said the same thing to China. Well, isn't that isn't that the funny thing here? Uh, you know, we're standing and looking at Russia, but yet we look at China, and well, because they haven't blown anything up or gone into anybody's territory, it's okay for them. Give it time. Give it time. Yeah, Taiwan exactly. is coming, unfortunately, but um, yeah, you know, give it time, and uh, and they're going to have to do the same thing, and then you're going to have two of the world's biggest countries out. Now, the one thing that's saving the IOC's hide in this one is that. The Americans and NBC still pay most of the freight. And so as long as you don't have to ban the Americans, you're fine because they Mm. still pay all the bills through their TV deal. And so, you know, we can make these other, we can do these other things and, you know, it looks bad and people will be ticked off at us. But really, in the bottom line, we don't have to close up our headquarters in Lausanne, Switzerland, because, you know, the Americans are still covering us. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming right up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks so much for the time. Have a great show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML. As always, thank you to you. Let me start again. As always, let's thank uh, who we got here. The two Wills, uh, Dave and Diana, for helping out with the show. And all the calls today, very cool. And all those that sent notes to Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the tax-paying customer, to have the last word. This is Mr. Lowe calling. Uh, perhaps with all the challenges the world is facing right now, perhaps now is the time for the human race to call E.T. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. 
All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.